Welcome. It's Happy Sabbath and Happy New Year. Yep, for those who will watch this in two weeks, it is New Year's Eve here today. So uh, we have one prayer request. Uh, Pat Hunt is suffering with uh, pneumonia and is asked for us to remember her in prayer. So if you can do that, please. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us safely through another year. Lord, uh, we uh, want to lift Pat up to you now, and you know uh, her circumstance. We ask that your healing energies will move upon her and help this infection be uh, resolved, that she will get back to health. We ask that you will be with us as we study today, that we will draw closer to you, understand your methods and ways, and that you will have your way in our lives to restore your image within us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in the uh, quarterly, uh, The Holy Spirit and Spirituality. And the title is The Holy Spirit Working Behind the Scenes. And the second paragraph says, yet he, the Holy Spirit, is not the center of biblical record, and we know amazingly little about him. He remains in the background, and that's because his role is to advance the work of someone else in the Godhead, Jesus, the Son of God, and to give glory to God the Father. All this so that fallen human beings might be saved from the eternal death that sin would otherwise bring them. I actually wanted to commend the, the, the language here. Notice that they're attributing that death comes from Sin, that's exactly right. Sin brings death, not God. That's a great way to put that. And then uh, the question I had as we look at the Holy Spirit and his, and his scene, uh, his role behind the scenes, do you think this is contextual? What I mean by that is, do we find this particular fact, which is historical fact, occurring because of the need of sinful human beings? Now, let's see if I can unpack that a little further. Would Jesus, for instance, have become human if humanity had not sinned? Would Jesus have been encumbered, you know, his divine attributes been restricted with human limitations had he not become human, which was because of our sin? Would Jesus have needed the Holy Spirit to act as his representative on earth if he hadn't taken on humanity? Would humans have needed the extra help of the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus and learn of the Father if we hadn't fallen into sin? Would humans have needed the extra help of the Holy Spirit to live victorious lives and to apply to our lives what Jesus accomplished if humanity hadn't sinned? So my point is, as we recognize that the Holy Spirit's in the background pointing to someone else, is this potentially a construct of our need rather than the way the, the Godhead has historically worked through all time. See, the Bible is a record of the information and plan of salvation that we need to be healed from sin. There is much about historical, the historical universal reality that is not recorded in Scripture. The things transpiring in the heavenly realms before creation of the humankind and stuff is really often quite silent. Yes. I remember a long time ago something that just kind of blew my mind that we were talking about is when you said Michael, being Jesus, was God's connection to the angels. Yeah. That was before sin. Yeah. So I see this as being a historical presentation of the way God always relates to his creation, not just our need, but that he wanted to be connected. We're talking about the Holy Spirit not being directly involved? That's the question. So do we have evidence that the Holy Spirit wasn't more involved in other places in the universe and other times? We, we don't have that evidence. 
No, but what I mean is, when you were going through that series, you yeah. said that Holy Spirit did this because Jesus did this. I think Jesus... Do we necessarily assume that Jesus wouldn't have become human if we hadn't sinned? Yes. What would have been his purpose? He would have... It doesn't mean he wouldn't have manifested... See, prior, prior to the incarnation being born of, of Mary... We have a record of Jesus manifesting in human form when he spoke to Abraham and so forth. So he would have manifested in human form, but manifesting in human form is not the same as becoming human. Limiting himself. Right. There's, those are completely different. Do you see the difference? Yeah. Yeah. The paragraph talks about how he remains in the background, but isn't that all the, the Godhead? They're always referring to each other. This the is difference. the point. This is, other. this is the point I was making. Is it our need that required the Son and what he has done to become to the forefront of our awareness because he is the member of the Godhead who is the, the actor to reverse the damage of sin that Adam's sin caused the human race. He's the second Adam and so forth. So our attention is necessarily drawn more to the Son because of his role in the plan of salvation. But as you're pointing out, I'm suggesting historically there may not have been this increased focus on one over the other, necessarily. Because you're right, even when Christ was here on earth, his focus was to point to the Father. He wasn't, he didn't draw attention to himself. Even after many miracles, think about today, if some person comes along and could perform the miracles Christ performed, how many people with our human nature would slip away and not draw attention to themselves when they did that? (laughs) Not many, right? Yeah. Okay, so... With this in mind, though, um, what do we know? What we do know is that man needed Jesus. Jesus had to come. What did man in sin need Jesus to do? What did Jesus accomplish, carry out, that the Holy Spirit and the Father did not do? And notice I said, did not do. I didn't say could not do. They just historically did, weren't the ones who did it. Jesus is the one who did it. Okay? Form a perfect character. Oh, I like how you said that. Yes. He formed a perfect character, revealing the truth, destroying the lies of Satan, and destroying the infection of fear and selfishness, forming a perfect humanity. Perfecting and healing humanity. This is what he did. Um, and he did this at the cross, of course, throughout his life and at the cross. What does humanity in sin need? Beyond what Christ did. Do we need something beyond what Christ did? Well, we need the Holy Spirit to make it useful to us. Don't we need the application in our lives, working through the Holy Spirit, to apply what Christ did in us? So Christ achieved something, all on his own, without any help from anybody else, singly and alone. Pardon? But, and that reconciled the species human to the Father, But as individuals, we need now to partake, to participate. Lots of metaphors, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, metaphorically speaking, partake of me. You can't have any part in me. A lot of metaphors. But that is what we need now. And so, Jesus said, it's expedient that I leave. If I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. When the Spirit comes, he's going to take what's mine and make it known to you. Taking his perfection and making it known in us. So here is uh, a historic quote from the Desire of Ages. 671, see if you agree with this. 
Because a lot of, if you actually think about this, this is a little bit counter to what much of Christianity teaches. In describing to his disciples the work of, the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is the spirit... That the it is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. By the spirit, the believer becomes the partaker of the divine nature. Did you all hear that? Now, this is quite amazing if you think it through now. Just take a mind and think through what's transpiring. What do you hear transpiring? What is being described? Do you hear any legal processes going on here? It's quite profound. Nothing legal. Jesus is described basically as procuring the remedy to fix the sin condition in humankind. And the Holy Spirit is described as applying what Christ achieved into the heart of the believer to transform, heal, and fix the brokenness in our characters. You don't find the Holy Spirit working on the Father to do something in the legal court setting or to adjust record books in a heavenly magistrate. You don't find that. That type of thinking, which is very common in Christianity, actually obstructs the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Because what we desire when we think that way is we actually pray and seek for something to be going on up there with the Godhead to fix and adjust anger, wrath, hostility, records, legal standings, but we're not participating to adjust our own attitudes and motives of the heart. Now, as we just described this, this work of the Holy Spirit, this office work of the Holy Spirit, applying to sinners what Christ has achieved, was this action, this role of the Spirit needed before humankind sinned? Clearly not. So back to the point I was trying to make, this particular office work is something that the Holy Spirit needed to do only in the context of human beings living out of harmony from God's design. Yes. Adam in the Garden of Eden, would they not need the divine energy and um, the divine guidance in developing their characters as they lived? Depends on what you mean by that. If you're suggesting, could they have life original in themselves, unborrowed, underived from God as the source of life, life itself, the answer is clearly no. All life for all beings in the universe originate from God and are sustained by God. So if you're meaning life, then, then no, the answer is no. If you're asking, could they in their, exercise their own abilities with which they were created prior to their rebellion to develop a holy and perfect character in harmony with God without the help that we need, we describe here, the answer is yes, they could have. Adam was created with that ability. And I don't have the quote here, but Ellen White specifically states that, that prior to sin, Adam had the capacity and the abilities to develop a perfect character. But we do not. 
alone and separate from Christ. Is it reasonable to to suggest that the Holy Spirit was very active from the time that Lucifer began his rebellion, you know, seeking out the hearts and minds of the of the angelic host. Well, my, my view is that the, all members of the Godhead have always been active, all three, and always been involved, all three, and always other-centered, and always seeking the benefit, and they just took on different roles doing different stuff, but they've always been around, always been doing things. Right. What I'm trying to say is all of the inspired sources that we read about these things are written to a specific audience in sin with a specific goal to bring us the message we need for our healing and restoration. They are not written to be the absolute revelation of how the universe has always worked outside of sin. That's not what the Bible's written for. So we have a certain lens, a certain filter on the inspiration itself, giving us, because it's an infinite amount of information, God's infinite, limiting the information specifically to our need. And that's what I'm, I'm suggesting. So I'm, I, if we look at the Godhead, I think they're all equal in abilities. Prior to the incarnation, Christ evidently restricted the access, like omnipresence, when he took on humanity. But prior to that, I think he had that. It seems like Christ and the Holy Spirit are the ones that do all the work. Christ came down here, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So what does the Father do in all this? So uh, hopefully we'll get to that in the lesson, because there's several other things we want to hit in the lesson. But that, that God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Who was in the Son? For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. If God is for us, who can be against us? You will find in Scripture, all over Scripture, that when it comes to our good, it's always the Father, Son, and Spirit working cooperatively together, always harmoniously, always all three on the same plan, same team, same energies, working in the same direction for our good. All of them, all the time. We, in our limited minds, as I said before class, the way, our, way our, our faculties and abilities work, can anybody in here say three words at the same time? No, we cannot say three words at the same We have to say them sequentially. We can't say three words at one time. We can't do that. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are simultaneously all doing things. But we, we process information sequentially, so we tend to set up hierarchical stuff in the way we think. Yes? Just the process... This quarter of trying to concentrate on the Holy Spirit separates in our minds to some degree Him and His purpose and whatnot. That may be a little bit artificial because that's how we have to deal with in our minds about an entity. Yeah, exactly right. And yet I would encourage you to think like some ways like marriage. There are two separate individuals, but they're to become one. Think how they're separate. Think how they're one. And then, and then infinitely increase all those elements. The unity, the oneness. Okay? So let's go to Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says, By comparing the Holy Spirit's actions to that of the wind, Jesus describes the Spirit's elusiveness. The movements of the wind have some something mysterious about them. It is difficult to predict with exactness where the wind comes from and where the wind is going. Who hasn't at times been baffled by the sudden appearance of wind seemingly out of nowhere? I actually think that this was not necessarily the most important element Jesus was trying to get people to appreciate. When you think about the Holy Spirit being compared to the wind, are there actually some other attributes that maybe we haven't fully acknowledged? For instance, what is it? Ab- what about the ubiquitousness? Ubiquitousness means everywhere. Everywhere. Because what is wind made out of? Air. air. And air is everywhere. 
Can you have wind without air? Can you have wind in a vacuum? You cannot. Wind requires air. Is the Holy Spirit like air also required for life? Think that through. The air is everywhere. And without it, it's an, it creates an atmosphere which is conducive for our health and gives us life. Even with the Holy Spirit, it creates an atmosphere. It's conducive for us, to, for our life. So is air sometimes not noticed? You just forget about it. You just, it's all there all the time, and often you may not even notice it. Unless a very strong wind comes up and then you notice. But oftentimes you don't notice. Is the Holy Spirit like that? Often there all the time, but maybe not noticed. Unless it comes with real power. Then suddenly we notice something happened. Wow, something's happening here. It can also be noticed with an absence, like on a very sultry, hot summer day, and you wish for wind. I'm not even talking wind. I'm talking air. Yeah, but the breeze, though, can be... So so the breeze could be very cooling and refreshing, so the Holy Spirit can be refreshing, yes. So what is the most important aspect to air, though? Is it its ability to blow wind, or is it its life-giving properties? Necessity for life. So what would happen if the air were removed from planet Earth? What would happen if the Holy Spirit were removed from planet Earth? Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty good analogies here. And because of the air, we have clouds, rain, snow, climate, transfer of heat. Because of the Holy Spirit, we have the early and the latter rains, which refresh the soul, the life-giving presence and power of truth and love, which create an atmosphere in the heart and in the family and in the community. Second paragraph. I just encourage you to think next time beyond just wind and what wind does to something broader and deeper when you think about the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a life-sustaining atmosphere from God. Yet, we can learn to become somewhat familiar with the movements and patterns of the wind. In a, in a similar manner, the Holy Spirit is active where he wills. No one can control him. Yet, we can know where he's active and at work. I thought this was quite profound. Do we agree that we cannot control the Holy Spirit? Do we agree? Why, then, do so many Christians seek to dictate the Spirit's activities. How do humans try to do this? How about groups that restrict the evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit to only one single manifestation, speaking in tongues? I know many Christians who are distraught because they believe that the only evidence that the Holy Spirit has filled their lives is if they speak in tongues. If they don't speak in tongues, then the Spirit hasn't come. But the Bible talks about many gifts of the Spirit and many manifestations of the Spirit. But if we say that it's only this one and this one only, have we just dictated to the Holy Spirit, I won't believe you're working in my life until you do this. Are we seeking to control? What about organizations that say the Holy Spirit is restricted by gender? That the Holy Spirit is not allowed to ordain any woman to the gospel ministry? And if the Holy Spirit were to ordain a woman to gospel ministry, it would not be the working of the Holy Spirit. We would deny it. I thought I might share a few historic quotes with you. (laughs) This is um, from Evangelism 493, written in 1903. If women do the work that is not the most agreeable to many of those who labor in word and doctrine, and if their works testify that they are accomplishing a work that has been manifestly neglected, should not such labor be looked upon as being as rich in results as the work of the ordained ministers, 
Should it not command the hire of a laborer? This question is not for men to settle. The Lord has settled it. You are to do your due. By the way, I am not bringing this up to cause division. I am bringing this up because division already exists. And as the Holy Spirit works and we come closer and closer to God, you will read as the New Testament teaches, we come under one head, Jesus Christ. The divisions are done away with. We have at one or atonement. And there is neither male nor female, Jew or Greek. We come under one head and we surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit and let him determine how each individual is best useful in the cause that he has. You're going to find as I unpack the rest of this that it's human prejudices, human biases, human bigotry, human preconceived ideas that has restricted the work of God on earth and caused so much division. And I'm going to give you many examples. Let me keep keep going with this quote. So I'm not bringing it up to cause division. I'm bringing it up because we live in division. This question is not for men to settle. The Lord has settled it. You are to do your duty to the women who labor in the gospel, whose work testifies that they are essential to carrying the truth into families. Their work is just the work that must be done and should be encouraged. In many respects, a woman can impart knowledge to her sisters that a man cannot. This cause would suffer great loss without this kind of loss without this kind of labor by women. Again and again, the Lord has shown me that women teachers are just as greatly needed to do the work which He has appointed them as are men. Now, does this statement mean? Does this statement say that God only appoints one type of work to women, that of teaching other women, or this is merely an example? given by the author to bring her main thrust home that God uses women in ministry. And she uses this example to avoid the backlash and the rejection of her main point that God uses women in ministry that would have come up had she not used this specific example. doesn't say it's restricted. Let's give another quote. The point I'm making is the Holy Spirit, do we leave the Holy Spirit free to ordain for use in God's cause whomever the Spirit wants, male or female? That's the point I'm trying to make. Next one is Daughter of God, page 251. All who desire an opportunity for true ministry and who will give themselves unreservedly to God will find in the canvassing canvassing work opportunity to speak upon many things pertaining to the future immortal life. The experience thus gained, notice the experience in canvassing work, notice what it's doing, thus gained will be of greatest value to those who are fitting themselves for ministry. So this is preparing for ministry, fitting themselves for ministry. It is... The accompaniment of the Holy Spirit of God that prepares workers, both men and women, to become pastors to the flock of God. Hmm. Testimonies of the Church, Volume 6, and Daughters of God, 251. The Lord calls upon those connected with our sanitariums, publishing houses, and schools to teach the youth to do evangelistic work. Our time and energy must not be so largely employed in establishing sanitariums, food stores, and restaurants that other lines of work will be neglected. Young men and young women who should be engaged in the ministry, in Bible work, and in the canvassing, notice, in ministry, in the Bible work, and in the canvassing work, should not be bound down by mechanical employment. The youth should be encouraged to attend our training schools for Christian workers. Some will be trained to enter the field as missionary nurses, some as canvassers, and some as gospel ministers. Young men and young women. Interesting. Hmm. Why then did Ellen White not actively and overtly promote the ordination of women? 
Any thoughts on this? Yes. Well, I submit that just like we have divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, that a lot of the reason women weren't put in charge is because of men that they would be in charge of. Thank you. That's exactly right. Let's unpack that. So what is the primary purpose of all God's spokespersons, prophets of the past, Bible writers, to speak the truth about God in a language the audience can comprehend as winsomely as possible, and therefore to not introduce things that are not pertinent to that message and would offend and close minds? You all follow me on this? Okay. So given a case in point. Why are there black conferences in the southern states of the United States of America, but no other area in the world? It's the only area in the whole Adventist worldwide church. We have a worldwide church with conferences all over the world, but only in the southern states of America do we have separate black conferences. There's a reason for this. There's a reason. Because we had slavery and huge prejudices on the part of the whites in the south. What would have happened in the Seventh-day Adventist Church back in the 1890s, early 1900s, all the way up through probably the last 20 years, maybe, um, if, but back then, 18, 1860, 1870, 1880, and so forth, when the Adventist Church was establishing itself, if the Adventist Church would have integrated churches with black members coming in to attend and sit in pews next to the white members, and black pastors trying to preach to white members, what would have happened? Would the gospel have been advanced? Or would likely most of those people have been killed? Not most hearts will willing and hearts will not willing. Okay. Was God against blacks and whites integrating in worship to him? Absolutely not. Then why was this accommodation made if it wasn't God's will? Why would we go down this path if it's not God's purpose? Because of the hardness of our hearts. You see, in order for true equality to happen in human beings, they must first come to a true knowledge of God and have their hearts changed. Yes or no? Okay. This means the gospel message has to be presented first. And they have to come to know Jesus first. And if we instead go to people with bigot, that are bigoted and prejudiced and biased and instead put on a social agenda to force them to accept equality before their hearts are changed, what will that incite? <laughs> Conflict, resentment. People would have been burned and the gospel would have been hindered. Okay? So was their policy set up due to cultural biases that were not what God would have preferred but were expeditious in that contextual setting? Yes, way in the back. I think there's a common element in the example of the black conferences and in the ordination of women and the Holy Spirit, you know, dictated in both that this should, certain things should happen. I think the bottom line is, who's going to pay for it? So, do you see that, that this was expeditious at a particular time, but it was clearly not God's design nor purpose, ever? Everybody with me so far? And it was only due to the hardness of the heart, primarily of the white people. I don't know that today we can promote that, that, that as the reason that it's still, and not, and not having been, you know, the conference is integrated into one joint conference and union and so forth. I don't know that that's the reason in 2016. I think there is tradition. There is, um, you know... Um, Styles. Well, styles, you can have different... We have, we have Hamilton Community Church in the conference. You can have lots of different styles under the same conference. Because of the style. 
But, but you, can have, you can have one conference with churches multiple different styles. You don't have to have different conferences for different styles of worship. No, I think this has to do historically now with power, with authority, with position, with promotion, with money, with other things that institutions have and people that have institutions. They don't want to share power. And these types of things are keeping the division today where it was prejudice and bias in the hearts of people before. Okay, That's my purpose. But I wanna, I, I, we're not going to get stuck on that. We're moving on. We're moving on to the women thing, because I want to bring this a lesson to come back. I think we've all agreed with the main thrust that this happened only because of the prejudice in the heart that it was not God's design. Then, I think this is exactly why Ellen White did not push her women's ordination, not because God was opposed, but because males were biased and opposed. Here's a portion from a letter from Ellen White's secretary answering an inquiry about women's ordination and, and an article that Ellen White wrote. Here's the, here's the secretary's response. And I may add that Sister White personally was very careful about expressing herself in any wise as to the advisability of ordaining women as gospel ministers. She has often spoken of the perils that such general practice would expose the church to by gainsaying world. What's her concern? God is opposed to it? Bias and prejudices of the world, okay? But as yet, I have never seen from her pen any statement that would seem to encourage the formal and official ordination of women to the gospel ministry to public labor such as ordinarily expected of all ordained ministers. This is not suggesting, much less saying, that no women are fitted for such public labor and that none should ever be ordained. See, what was the issue? It was not about whether it was proper to ordain a woman in under God's plan and design. It was about the cultural biases and prejudices of men who don't want to believe a woman could do a job as good as they could do. Better. Perhaps better in some areas. The Holy Spirit with anybody for them to be effective, regardless of gender, is based on whether or not they put God first and you're letting him speak through and, and communicate. Yes. So when we talk about equality, we have to understand that human beings are not equal in ability. Amen. This has been lost on this last generation of human beings. Human beings, are not, men do not have the ability to become pregnant and have a child. We don't have that ability. It's a different ability. We are equal in value and moral worth. That's where we're equal in worth and value. But we do have different abilities. And the Holy Spirit invests and empowers people with different abilities as the church for the benefit of all. And so the, the mature group says... Holy Spirit, come on our group and empower those that you recognize will do the best job in these different departments of your cause, and we will recognize those abilities and support and help those people. But instead, we come along and say, Holy Spirit, work on those who we give you permission to work on, and if you work on somebody that we haven't authorized, we're not going to recognize it. In fact, we might even expel them from our fellowship. And this is some of the troubles we've had. If you look at uh, history, how God plans to heal and restore this planet to perfection have been hindered, limited, watered down because of the biases, bigotry, and prejudices of human beings. Think about the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Never God's plan they wandered for 40 years. They're supposed to be straight in. How about regulations given on meat eating? He was given a manna. He didn't want him to eat meat. They demanded meat. So he said, okay, eat these animals prepared in this way. It'll be least damaging. But now we have all this other stuff we have to deal with, rigmarole. Okay, what about kings? 
Who chose their first two kings? God chose. But, but he warned them over it. Don't do it. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. But it did. They did. It did. Cause problems. Seventy years in captivity. Why? The dark ages. What happened to the whole dark ages? How about the delay in Christ's return since 1844? How about Christ's original coming? They wouldn't accept him because he didn't come in the way they expected. Christ's original coming. Exactly. Biases and prejudices. Divorce. Divorce. So many places God's ability to work is restricted by our refusal to follow the truth, to open our hearts, let the Holy Spirit lead. Monday's lesson, in the last paragraph, it says, The Holy Spirit does not appear as a central actor in creation story. Instead, he is hovering over the world, over the void, and through his moving, he is present at the genesis of life on this earth. The Hebrew word for moving over or hovering over the surface of the earth that is used in Genesis 1-2 is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy 32-11 where God is compared to an eagle hovering over the, its young nest. The Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the creation of life on this earth and takes care of the newly created living beings as an eagle would for her young. Psalms 104 suggests that the creation act was possible only through the work of the Holy Spirit and he plays an active part in this process. Do you see the Godhead having different roles, not different abilities? They all, they all are pre-existent, having life original, underived from another source, having no restrictions in their abilities until Christ voluntarily became incarnate and surrendered some of his abilities. But they're all equal. They just chose in cooperation amongst themselves for whatever reasons they did that one would manifest and do one thing and one would do another thing, not because the others couldn't, but because it was a shared cooperative decision. Bottom green section says, what does the Sabbath tell us about this work of creation and recreation? Any thoughts about what, do you, what does the Sabbath tell us about the work of creation and recreation? Do, does it tell us anything? What lessons do you derive from the Sabbath? God's creation always includes freedom. She says God's creation always includes freedom. I agree completely. How do you get that from the Sabbath? I agree we do. How do you get it? God said, I did all of this. I can do anything, but I am not going to control you. I am going to be in relationship with you, but the Sabbath represents my rest from the use of my power in our relationship. I love that. Do you all hear that? So when was the Sabbath created, according to the record that we have? At the end of creation week of this planet. Now, were there other intelligent beings already in existence before terraforming planet Earth? Yes. According to, to Job chapter 38, yes, the angels sang for joy at the, at the creation of the foundation of the earth were late. So days one through six of creation week recorded in Genesis, we learn God is very powerful. But on day seven, we learn what you're suggesting, that he doesn't use his power to coerce, threaten, intimidate, force people to do it his way. He actually restricts the use of his power, steps back, creates a space and time for his beings to think and be free. So we learn the character of the one who wields. It's very profound. If, if God were actually the type of control monster Satan says he is, there would be no Sabbaths. So the Sabbath every week is evidence. Its existence proves that Satan lied. Because if, if God really functioned that way, we wouldn't have a day of freedom to think. And we would have never had sin because God would have been micromanaging everything. Well, we wouldn't have had sin because we wouldn't have had free sentient beings. We've only had robots. It means we would have never had love either. Yes. Also, that same creator God was Jesus. 
And so here you see him at the end of his life in John saying, uh, he realized that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him. And so he took off his, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed all the disciples' feet. The very next verse. This is, the God, this is what God does with his power. He serves. A Sabbath is a way of serving us. There's, there's no question. So I, I thought I'd read to you from the remedy out of Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about this day of rest, the Sabbath rest, was often put to this as... Um, This is out of the remedy, verses 1 to 11. It says, therefore, since the remedy is still available and the promise of complete healing and perfect rest still stands, let us be careful that none of us be found to have rejected it. For we also have the good news of God's healing truth presented to us just as they did. But the message of truth had no value to them because they did not believe it, nor did they trust the one who gave it. But we, who have trusted God on the basis of the truth Christ provided, experience healing and enter that rest, and our minds are at peace. As God said, so I granted them their persistent choice and said, since they refuse the truth, the remedy I freely offer, they will never be able to enter my rest and get well. It was not because God's perfect rest was not available, for it had been ready since the work of creation was complete. As the scriptures say elsewhere regarding the seventh day, and on the seventh day God rested his case. He had finished all his work, providing the evidence needed to refute the lies of Satan. And yet, in another passage he says, if they refuse the truth, if they reject the evidence I have provided, their minds will never find rest and they will not get well. The opportunity to find God's healing and rest still remains, even though those who formerly had the good news of God's healing truth presented to them did not get well, or find rest because they refuse to believe the truth and trust God. Therefore, God again and again presents his healing remedy, and he set a certain day, which he called today, when much later he spoke through David in the same scripture as before, today, if you hear his voice offering healing and restoration, do not reject the true remedy and darken your minds. For if Joshua had already given them healing of character and rest for their minds, God would not have spoken later about another day of rest still to come. There remains then a Sabbath rest, a rest in the evidence and truth of the character of God, which heals and transforms the people of God. For anyone who rests in the achievements of Christ rests from working to save himself, just as God rested from his work. Let us therefore make every effort to rest in the truth about God as revealed by Christ, so that no one will fall by following the example of distrust and refusal to accept the truth. Thoughts? Also, the miracles Jesus did on Sabbath tell us what Sabbath is about for us. He gave sight to a man that was born blind. That is, he revitalized his actual brain, renewed and restored his actual brain and his vision on Sabbath. Partly, I think, to get conversation going with the with the. Um, rulers and so on, but first I think Jesus said, you don't understand the meaning of my miracles. The miracle wasn't just to pick out one guy and a whole bunch of people who needed stuff, it was to make a point on the Sabbath. He unparalyzed a guy. He gave sight to a blind person that was blind from birth, etc. So if you look at the miracles that he does on Sabbath, partly it exhibits what Sabbath is. Which, which is, I like where you're going, take, take the next step. In which he means to use the Sabbath as a way of reconnecting, revitalizing, restoring, regenerating us. Yeah. Unparalyzing us, making us be able to see clearly. And some of the recognition is 
God's character, truth, present love, leaving people free. But also, the Sabbath is evidence of God as creator. And creation operates on what type of law? Design law. And we come back to see him as the sustainer of reality, and those are his laws, not this imperialistic thing. Yes? I think the, the part of the Holy Spirit is rejuvenation on the Sabbath. Yeah, no, no question. Absolutely. Tuesday's lesson, the title is Holy Spirit in the Sanctuary. What do you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit in connection with the sanctuary? The lesson points us to the Holy Spirit's gifting of the craftsmen with abilities to make the elements of the Old Testament facility. And there's no question that happened. But are there bigger lessons involved here? What was the old sanctuary built in the Old Testament? What was it actually? Not, not, not the material, but what was it? It was a stage. It was an object lesson, an acted out drama with cool props and, and costumes and, and a script, often called scripture. And what was it to depict? That old tent, what was it to depict? It was a demonstration of where we were and God's ideal for where we were going. It, or what we could, where we could go. It was to depict us, that's exactly right, as sanctuaries for the Spirit. Let's look at this. Just as the Shekinah presence of God dwelt in that building, so too the Holy Spirit is to dwell in, in us. Just as the sanctuary had blood administered throughout, during all the different ceremonies, it was just ministered throughout the thing, Jesus said that we must do what? The blood must be put inside of us. Just as the law was kept in the most holy place in that old system, so too in the new covenant the law is written where? In our hearts and minds. Just as the lamp was in that building, so too God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which is to be living where? In our hearts, enlightening our minds. Just as the priests were dressed in white robes, our characters are to be cleansed and perfected, and we're to be covered in the robe of the white robe of Christ's righteousness, having our characters renewed. Just as the priests set out, met, excuse me, just as the priests met each Sabbath with the high priest to eat the showbread, every Sabbath, that's what happened. So too, we are to meet each Sabbath with Jesus and consume his word, making it part of our thoughts, beliefs, and cherishing it in our hearts which is what the bread represents, partaking of Christ. And just as the Holy Spirit enabled people to build the physical building, so too the Holy Spirit gifts people today to go out and spread the gospel, teach truths that will shape and polish other people, preparing them to become living stones built together into a house for the Lord. Here's another historic quote. I love this one. This is out of three manuscript re releases. If our church leadership would embrace this and put this front and center, it would free so much, so many minds from the, we're just so stuck into a false system on our sanctuary teaching. Get this. This is brilliant. It's going to compare first paragraph, first tabernacle, and then it's going to apply it. The first tabernacle built according to God's direction was indeed, by the way, it's three manuscript release 231. Three manuscript release 231. The first tabernacle built according to God's direction was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. 
The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at the quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house, all prepared for use. Okay, make the transition. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. These souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world, where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character. We must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. Do you understand the significance of this? The implications? Let you, we're we're going to unpack this further with some more quotes from uh, paragraphs from the lesson. Did you have your hand up? Question? No. All right. It says. Um, The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit was also present at the building of the sanctuary, the central place where reconciliation between God and human beings took place and a holy God met sinners. It was God who communicated to Moses his plan to build the earthly sanctuary according to the heavenly original, Exodus 25, 9 and 40. First question, did reconciliation between sinful humanity and God actually take place at the Old Testament sanctuary or... Was that only a mere enactment, a theatrical depiction of the true reconciliation that takes place between God and sinful man? Did it really take place there? Or was that only a depiction of the ultimate, genuine, real reconciliation? Where did the true reconciliation take place? At the cross. That's exactly, this is important. The lesson doesn't say this. The lesson says that reconciliation took place there at this building. It did not. And if we think this way, it leads to superstitious thinking. It leads to concretism, literalism, failure to be able to abstract, misunderstanding. So reconciliation took place between God and the human race at the cross when Jesus fixed what Adam did to the species. The lesson also states it was God who communicated to Moses his plan to build the earthly sanctuary according to the heavenly original. Hmm. They actually, what do you understand this to be saying? She said that there's one in heaven, that there's a building, a bigger, more grander building in heaven, and this is a copy of the building. This is so common. And they give two Bible verses. Who are we to question? There's two Bible verses referenced right there. It must be true, right? Why don't we look the Bible verses up? I mean, seriously, before we even do, though, just think. Before we even do, let's reason. Then we're going to look at the Bible verses. But reason this out. Do we actually think there's a building in heaven with two compartments separated by a veil and has a golden altar with a fire there where incense is being burned along with a lampstand, a golden table, and bread, and wine, and Jesus eats every seven days the bread with some of the saved up there, and behind the curtain is a box made out of genetically defective wood covered by gold containing a rod, man, and ten commandments? Yes. No. <laughs> she said Yes. I mean, that's what we've been taught to this day. Yes, we have. And, and let's see, let's look at the evidence. So here are the two texts from Exodus that they referenced to support this assertion. Exodus 25, 9. 
make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. That's 9. Here's verse 40. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. What was Moses shown on the mountain if we stick with Scripture? Architectural blueprints. Blueprints, a pattern, an architectural plan, a drawing. He was not shown a building in heaven. This is projection. This is fantasy. This is made up thinking. It's no different than if you get a, for those who, remember the old days where women made clothes and they would go to the store and buy a pattern? Remember the pattern? Can you wear a pattern? Pattern is not a dress. Pattern is a piece of paper with drawings on it. That's what a pattern is. It's not reality. This was a pattern, a drawing, an illustration, a depiction, which was the architectural plans for what he built. That's what it was. Well then, wait a second. Hold on. You're just going way crazy on us here. You've got Hebrews 8 two. He serves as a high priest in the most holy place, that is, in the real tent, which was put up by the Lord, not by human hands. Well, there you have it. There's a tent in heaven made out of goatskin. How many believe there's a tent in heaven? It says right there, a tent. A tent made not with human hands. Don't you believe the Bible? What's wrong with you people? What do we do with this? How do we understand it? I believe there is a real physical sanctuary in heaven. I do. Physical, made out of matter. The question is that we must answer... If you use inspired sources, what are the building blocks? What are the physical substances from which this sanctuary is built? And I'll just run through some really fast. First Corinthians 3, 9. For we are God's fellow workers. For you are God's field, God's building. First Corinthians 3, 16. You yourself are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. I'm going to skip some of these because I want to move on. This one's a good one. This is Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. Remember the other passage about Christ as a cornerstone rejected? Okay. In him, the whole building is joined together and becomes a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. First Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, the living stone, there it is, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. But one I really, really like to jump to, I, I just did these to give you a foundation, but we'll go back... Here we are at Hebrews 8.2. Just put this back in your mind. He serves as the high priest in the most holy place. That is the real tent, which was put up by the Lord, not by human hands. Now jump to 2 Corinthians 5.1. I love this. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What, what's this talking about? Once we get past the finite mentality of humanity, of thinking in terms of humanity, 3D, time, and space, and are brief on how, how God thinks in terms of time and space, a lot of this will make a lot more sense. So this t- passage, 2 Corinthians 5.1, what's it talking about? This earthly tent. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, what's it talking about? We have a building from God, an eternal house... In heaven, not built by human hands. It's our heavenly bodies. This is the heavenly sanctuary. Built by God, not by us. Where we will dwell. Wow. 
Now, when you get all this together, does it give any new implications on the cleansing of the sanctuary? Until 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed? What would the sanctuary need to be cleansed from? Think of the context of Daniel. What's happening in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, where this is coming up? What's, what's transpiring? There is a little horn power that arises that's going to make war against the saints. And he's going to succeed until the Ancient of Days, some versions say make judgment in favor of the saints. The King James, which is more accurate in this particular context, in this text, says until judgment was given to the saints. Judgment, if you're thinking the old way, it's judicial. Somebody sitting up in the judgment seat making a verdict. That's not what it means. You have judgment. You have discernment. You can draw conclusions until judgment was given, until discernment was given. Why? Because we live in the world. We don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Battle. There's a war. Going up, this little horn power is warring. What kind of war? Warring against the saints. How? By misrepresenting God and getting in our heads. Paul puts it together beautifully in Thessalonians when he says, the man of sin, that man of perdition is going to arise and he's going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple? Did he ride up into heaven and knock Jesus off his throne and start ruling from the universe up there? No. This is this temple. This little horn power is going to misrepresent God, get us to believe such distortions about God, that he will establish himself in the spirit temple of human beings on earth as the supreme God construct, a dictator whose laws work no different than ours, who must be at peace, who has legal systems in heaven, with books he must open and cleanse. And this type of thinking is the infection from which... This horn power is going to wage war and succeed until when? Until judgment is given. Until we have enough reason and judgment and wisdom to reject the lie and embrace the truth. And there's a message that goes along with this. Fear God. Be in awe of him. Be amazed and give glory to him by revealing his character. Because the hour of his judgment, the hour has come in human history when people can finally say, God is not like what this little horn power says. He's not a dictator in the sky. He is the creator, designer. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Do you see the big landscape? Do you see the big picture? This is what the church was called to do. And we are still stuck teaching this imperialistic, legalistic, heavenly legalism of books in heaven being open, reviewing records, deeds being cast out, racing history books, and so forth, because we have misunderstood the entire sanctuary, which is you and me, that he's cleansing and preparing us and fitting us as living stones for that building. It's exciting. I get excited when I talk about this. can't tell. Yeah, but you do away with the complete teaching of our church. No, I don't. I don't do away with it anymore. No. See, when Christ came and he started telling them what it all meant, what did they say he was doing? You're doing away with it. When the apostles went forward after Christ and said, this is what it all means. You're doing away with our traditions. You're doing away with what our church is teaching. No, they weren't. They were setting it in its right light. We're not doing away with the sanctuary message. We're not doing away with the 2300-year prophecy. We're setting it in its right light what it really means. Just because something has been believed for decades and centuries is a certain way of, it doesn't mean it is. Amen. (laughs) The sun revolves around the earth. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly right. And so this, we, we are doing away with a certain way of thinking, but we're not doing away with the teaching. We're not doing away with the doctrine. 
And just as when those other beliefs were corrected, look what happened as far as our understanding of reality. When we understood that the sun didn't revolve around us, when we understood that the earth wasn't flat, it freed us to learn so much more. That's exactly right. And we come back to this truth, this unity, we see this reality that the work of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son is always together. In fact, I think I should mention this to you out of Romans 8 because we talked about the, started with the divergent roles of the Godhead. Romans chapter 8, if you look in Romans starting in verse 5, um, I, I can't read it all to you, but it talks, remember, that those who have their, the, those controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, of the Spirit of God lives in you, so forth and so on. Remember this? And then it says in 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts and knows our minds because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will, according to God's will. Notice whose will is being carried out when the Holy Spirit is interceding? God's will. And we keep going in the same chapter. What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us some, but gave him up. How he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus? He is the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us also means in addition to. In addition to who? In addition to the Holy Spirit and the Father. We have in one text that Paul is showing us that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three actively interceding for us. Not one member interceding with another member. They're all interceding for us in three places. One, they intercede in the hearts and minds of sinners to bring conviction, to draw, to woo, to give a desire for goodness. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis, he said, I will put enmity between, to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. I will not allow the, the, the human being to solidify perfect harmony in rebellion with you, sir, Satan. I will put a desire for something better, a longing for goodness in their heart. I will intercede in the hearts of my, my human children. And he intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding back the forces of destruction, the four winds of strife and so forth. You see this all through scripture. And most importantly, through Jesus Christ, he interceded with the natural trajectory and consequence of what sin would have done to the species human. Sin unrelieved, unremedied would have resulted in eternal destruction for humanity. But Jesus Christ who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we can have a different outcome, that we might become the righteousness of God. So he intercedes in those three places. And any doctrine that has one member of the Godhead interceding with a number of members of the Godhead is a lie. They're all for us. They just are doing different things, cooperative together on the same team for the same goal. Okay. No, you're out of time. It's just Matthew 13, 14, 18. If you'll read it, the state of our hearts determines what we can hear and understand. So Matthew 13, 14, 18. Yeah, I mean, it puts together um, what the Bible says about <clears throat> no one can see the kingdom of God unless they have been born again. But Revelation says that when Christ returns, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So here we have Jesus saying, you can't see his kingdom unless you've been born again. But those who are not born again will see him coming in. And, and he said, you will see me coming at the right hand of glory, he told them. So these unrepentant, unreborn people will see him coming in his glory. 
but they do not see his kingdom because his kingdom is not power and majesty. His kingdom is the kingdom of love and truth. And they reject that. And even though they see him in power and majesty, what they see is not a benevolent, kind, merciful, all other centered being. They see a vengeful, wrathful, angry dictator coming to kill them. It's not who he is. That's what they see because they have been unregenerated and they cannot see the kingdom of God until they're unregenerated, until they're regenerated. So it's exactly what you're saying. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to, to meet us where we are, to present truths that we could comprehend. Lord, we want to confess to you that we have many biases, many prejudices, many misunderstandings that have throughout all human history made it harder for you to achieve your goals of advancing your plan to heal and restore us. We ask that each one of us ask you to come into our hearts and minds and show us as individuals any areas that we might need to rethink, reevaluate, and change to draw closer to the reality as it is in you. And then make us effective in living out your, your methods and principles and sharing your love with others that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.